You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let me turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, the book of John, chapter 3. Look at the same passage that we read in our scripture reading this morning, though obviously not the whole passage, but a chunk of it. John, chapter 3. And when you have found your place, we'll bow our heads and ask God's blessing on our time and help as we study His Word. Our Father, we come to Your Word because it is our confident expectation that You will speak to us through it. We thank You that You have put down Your revelation to us in a book, that it is not bendable to the will of man, but it says what it says, and we ask that You would help us not only in understanding it, but that You would give us hearts ready to obey and energize our hearts together as we study Your Word. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher, that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ may be our everlasting concern, and that your book would be our guide today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have, as I sometimes have to, make a couple of corrections from last week in the sermon. Number one, top of my list, I said last week that my daughter Aiden was seven. She is eight. And, yeah, some of you are moaning because you know that is a high crime against eight-year-olds everywhere and probably humanity in general. I don't even think that I had breathed three times between the end of the last song and sitting there with her in front of me making sure that I remembered that she was eight and not seven. Don't anybody ever make that mistake. The second was um, that somebody had come up to me after the sermon last week and said you had mentioned in John 3 that The disciples of John the Baptist had a discussion on their part. They had raised this issue with uh, a Jew. And yet my translation, it was somebody who was reading out of the New King James, says the Jews. And so it might have caused a little bit of confusion because there is a difference in translation in John chapter 3, verse 20, was it 6? Yes, 25 and 26. There is a difference in translation. The King James and the New King James, which are based upon some later manuscripts, have the Jews. The NASB, NIV, other newer translations translated as a Jew, singular. And so I went with basically the bulk of the manuscripts, the bulk of commentators, the bulk of translations, and just mentioned that it was a Jew and not the Jews. And so there's probably a little bit of confusion, but only if you were reading a different translation other than the one I had, you may have wondered, how could he think that this Jew was John the disciple? And you remember last week I mentioned that. I prefaced it with a whole bunch of... Um, disclaimers saying basically what I'm about to present to you is my own meanderings and my own thoughts. And I suggested that the Jew that had this discussion with the disciples of John the Baptist was none other than John the Apostle. Or I said, is it possible that that Jew was John the Apostle? And do you remember I offered to you three lines of argumentation? First, I suggested that the, the he may have been John the Apostle because he describes this Jew in a very vague sense. He's very indescript, which John in this gospel typically is when speaking of himself, even when he is in the thick of the events that he is describing, he will typically, and he does not ever, name himself, but he will typically refer to himself in a very veiled fashion as the disciple whom Jesus loves or a disciple or another disciple or a disciple of Jesus, but never names himself as John. And I suggested that perhaps this indescript description of this Jew, this very vague description is indica- indication that 
this Jew is John the Apostle. Now, that's on one side, but let me argue against that for just a second and say that if, if it were John the Apostle, he would probably in all likelihood refer to himself as the disciple of John or a previous disciple of John's or a disciple of Jesus or the disciple whom Jesus loved or one of the other ways that he typically refers to himself. So that's kind of on the other side of it. The second line of argumentation that I gave you was to suggest that the phrasing that these disciples of John the Baptist used when they approached John the Baptist and they said, Master or Rabbi, the man that you testified on the River Jordan saying that he was the Christ, everybody's going to him. Everybody's leaving you and they're going to him. And that description itself described basically when John the Apostle left John the Baptist and went to follow Jesus. And the third line of argumentation that I would offer to you is that if the Jew being spoken of in John 3 is John the Apostle, then that makes him an eyewitness to this whole encounter, doesn't it? There's only really three ways that anybody, any of the gospel writers knew what went on. Either they were eyewitnesses of the event, or the Holy Spirit supernaturally revealed it to them, or somebody else told them, and they based their testimony on what was told to them. That's how Luke, for instance, wrote his gospel. It was based all upon eyewitness testimony. In the end, I don't know who the Jew was, and really I don't think it matters. Isn't it, sometimes I get questions from people, and they ask me questions, and I don't know the answer to them. That happens all the time, especially in adult Sunday school class. I say, you know what, I'm really not sure what the answer to that question is. Isn't it great when I raise questions that you haven't even thought of that I don't know the answers to? It's a real confidence builder, isn't it? I say, well, Jim didn't know the answer to my question, and it doesn't even seem that he knows the answers to his own questions. That's the case here in John chapter 3 with the identity of this Jew. The one thing that we do know is this. Before John was thrown into prison, after the events recorded in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, Jesus and John, for a period of time, this is the only gospel that mentions it, carried on parallel ministries where both of them were preaching repentance, both of them had people coming to them, and both of them were baptizing with a baptism of repentance. Now, during that period of time, it was brief, during that period of time, several weeks, perhaps a couple of months, there was this massive swing in popularity. John the Baptist's popularity began to wane. Jesus' popularity began to gain. And Jesus was becoming more and more popular, and John was sort of fading into the background. You get into John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and it says that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. And Jesus' gaining popularity tended to uh, cause John's disciples to get in sort of a, get distraught over Jesus' increase in popularity. People were leaving John, going to Jesus, being very zealous for the truth. These parallel ministries caused the disciples of John the Baptist to become jealous of Jesus. Now, here is the irony of the whole situation. This is what we looked at last week. Here were men who were zealous for the truth and zealous for the advance of the truth who found themselves in a very unenviable position. Being zealous for the truth over the course of time, when the truth began to be sort of gaining in popularity, they became jealous of the one who was the truth. That's irony, isn't it? In their quest to advance the truth, they actually got in a place where Jesus was a hindrance to their own ministry. The disciples of John, not John. And so Jesus' increasing popularity caused the disciples of John to be very distraught. And that's when they come to John in verse 25. After this discussion arose on the part of his disciples with the Jew about purification, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And they were upset, upset with Jesus' increasing popularity and John's waning popularity, because these men, these disciples, had been all about the advance of the truth and John's ministry. And to keep John, excuse me, to keep John center stage was to keep the truth at the center of the stage. 
to keep John out there in front of people and people following John was in their minds to keep people pursuing the truth because John was a legitimate and valid and real spokesman for God. He was a prophet of God and he was pointing to the Messiah. So to draw people to him meant to draw people to the Messiah. In their view, what they had done was glom on to John and were neglecting the Messiah who was one region over baptizing with a baptism of repentance. So that sort of sets the stage for what is the last recorded testimony of John the Baptist. This testimony, these words are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke because they take place in a period of time that the other three gospel writers skip over entirely. So we owe all of our information here to just John and John alone, John the Apostle. This is going to be a good one not to talk about John the Baptist and try and keep these two Johns straight in our own minds. John the Apostle, the author of the gospel, here records something that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record. It's not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to cut it out. It's just that, listen, gospel writers had to edit what they put into their gospels for obvious reasons, because if the world were, the world could not contain all the books that could be written about Jesus if everything that he did and said was written down. So, we owe our understanding of what happened here with John the Baptist to John the Apostle, and this sets the stage for what is the last recorded testimony from John the Baptist. The last recorded one. These are his last words concerning Jesus. Now the Gospel writers, remember, they record John's question to Jesus, which is what? Are you the one, or should we be looking for somebody else? There was that brief period at the end of John's life where he started to say, I'm not quite certain, viewing everything from what's going on around me, if you are the one or if we ought to be looking for somebody else. But his testimony concerning Jesus, this is the last recorded one. Verses 27 through 36. Now the money verse is verse 30. And I want you to view verse 30 as this. It is sort of the fulcrum upon which this whole passage turns It's the hinge upon which the whole passage turns. Everything prior to verse 30 is all of John's reasons why he must decrease. Verses 31 to 36 are all of John's reasons why Jesus must increase. And then verse 30 is sort of the pivot point. John says, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's what this whole passage is about. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. His ministry must grow, mine must shrink. He must be magnified, I must step back into the shadows. That's the essence of the whole passage. So the first three verses, 27, 28, and 29, have to do with all of the reasons why John must decrease. And then he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Verse 31 through 36, here are all the reasons why Christ must increase and he must be exalted. So think of it in those terms. We're going to look at verses 27 through 29, and we'll save verse 30. Actually, we're going to reference verse 30 today, but we're going to save really verse 30 for another time. In these, in these verses, 27 to 29, we see really three reasons, three reasons why John must decrease. So this is all about John explaining why it was necessary for him and his ministry to step back into the shadows, as it were, in order to allow Jesus to take the center of the stage. Three reasons. First, in verse 27, because God had determined it. John answered and said to them, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. God had determined that this was the plan. Second, his own message, his own message had demonstrated that this was necessary. Verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. And then verse 29 is the third reason. The success of his ministry actually demanded it or depended upon it. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, 
and I must decrease. If you're going to underline one verse in the whole passage, verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. So let's look at those three reasons. First, God had determined it. God had determined it. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That is a statement of the absolute and total and complete sovereignty of God over ministries and ministers. Ministries and ministers. And basically the essence of the statement is this. It is God and God alone who determines the beginning, the end, the scope, the breadth, the amount of influence, and the length of any man's ministry and any man as a minister. God alone is the one who determines that. If one man comes up and he has a crowd of 50 that follow him, it is God who determines that. Another man comes up and he teaches and a crowd of 500 follows him, it is God who determines that. God is the one who is sovereign over the beginning, the end, the length, and the influence of every ministry and every minister without exception. Because no man, no man can have anything unless it has been granted to him from heaven. Now you and I recognize the basis of that truth even when it comes to the things that you and I own and possess, right? Do you have anything that you have not been given as a gift from heaven? Anything at all? Life? Breath? No, every breath you breathe is a gift to you from a sovereign God who rules in heaven. And by the way, the phrase, given to him from heaven, is synonymous with saying given to him from God because the dominion, it was just a colloquialism or a figure of speech, a phrase that simply meant given by God since heaven was God's dominion and heaven was the place where God rules. If it was given from heaven, it was given under the dominion or the rule of God. So that's why the phrase given under heaven or given to him from heaven. It expresses the sovereignty or the rule of God, not only over heaven, but of all the gifts that he gives to men. So every gift that you've been given, however small or however, however great, is a gift from heaven. And nothing that you enjoy or have ever enjoyed or ever will enjoy has come to you from any source other than from heaven. So every breath that you take is a gift from a sovereign God who rules in heaven. The weather outside is a gift from a sovereign God who rules from heaven. The house that you live in, the car that you drive, the children that you have, the job that you possess or don't possess, or getting fired, all of it is a sovereign gift from a God who rules in heaven. You cannot receive anything unless God either gives it to you or grants it to you. Or grants, and by grant I mean He allows it to come into your life. You understand this? There are two ways that God works. God either gives you things, He either does something, or He allows things to happen to you. But either way, it comes back to the responsibility rests with God, who has either given it or allowed it. Not just some things, but all things. And Paul chided the Corinthians. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17? Or verse 7, I think it is. What do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Can you name a single thing that has come to you apart from the sovereign purposes of the providential care of God? You say, does that apply to my cancer as well? It most certainly does. It most certainly does. Everything that has come to you has been either given or has been allowed to happen to you by the sovereign and providential hand of God. He's not up in heaven pulling out his hair trying to figure out how to cure your problems. He has allowed them to happen for a reason. Always that is the case. Because you can receive nothing unless it is given to you or granted to you from heaven. And all that you have been given and all that you have received and all that you ever will receive are given to you from heaven. We are quick to recognize the sovereignty of God over nations, over peoples, over evil and sin, over the will and choices of man, over the weather, over natural disasters, over death and disease, over the timing of our birth and the fall of our, and our timing of our death, over the rise and fall of kings and nations and continents and all of that. 
We are quick to recognize the sovereignty of God over all of all of that. But how often do we stop and consider and say, you know what, God is sovereign not only over, over all of those details, but he is also sovereign over the beginning, the scope and influence, and the end of my ministry and what I do. And that is what John is saying here. No man can have anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. J.C. Ryle said this, Success, promotion, and growth of influence are gifts which God keeps entirely in his own hands. Do you hear that? If one faithful minister's popularity wanes while another's popularity and influence over men's hearts increases, the thing is of God and we must submit to his appointment. And that is all John is saying here. Jesus is increasing in popularity, I am decreasing in popularity, and that is by the hand of God, and that is as it should be. And John was not distressed over Jesus' increasing popularity because John knew that God had determined the beginning, the end, and the scope of influence of his own ministry, and God had determined the beginning and the end of the scope of influence of Jesus' ministry, and John was able to say, I'm comfortable with whatever it is that happens, whether I increase or decrease, because it is all by the hand of God, and God himself, in his providential and sovereign control, has determined the beginning and the end, and the scope of my ministry. And if God wills for me to decrease, I'm happy with decreasing. John was willing to say that. Now, what are the applications of that to you and I? Well, John's primary application, I believe, is to himself. I believe that the words that he says there are not really describing Jesus in particular, but John is thinking of his own self, and he is demonstrating that the limits of his own ministry had to do with God's sovereign purposes. And John is saying this, to sort of paraphrase it. I don't have what I don't have because God has determined not to give me that. And I can't have what God has not given to me. And I can have nothing unless heaven grants it, and heaven has not granted to me a ministry beyond the scope of the one that I have. And I'm content with that. And it is not my point to go out and to gain more followers and gain more disciples because God Himself has put a limit on what He has given to me. And since heaven has not granted it, I will not take it. You disciples of mine, you want me to go out and to have more disciples than Jesus. You want me to have a bigger ministry than Jesus, to baptize more people than Jesus, and to have a greater influence than Jesus. But that has not been granted to me from heaven. And since it has not been granted to me from heaven, I will not take it from heaven. Because no man can have anything that has not been given to him by heaven. He's describing the limitations of his own ministry. But he's also describing the scope and influence of Jesus' ministry and saying the opposite. If he has what he has, it is because God has sovereignly willed for him to have what he has had. Jesus cannot have more popularity and more increase of ministry and more influence than I unless heaven has granted that. And heaven has granted that, and I am content with that. It also applies to you and I. You ever heard yourself say to yourself, I wish I could play an instrument like that guy. I wish I could sing like so-and-so. I wish I had that type of a ministry. I wish I had a radio program. I wish I had a book deal. I wish I had a huge church. I wish I was in a position of leadership and influence like that. I wish I I had that type of influence and that type of respect that so-and-so across town or the other guy on the other side of the country has in his church and his ministry. You ever say that to yourself? You ever find yourself envying what somebody else has? No. Not a person here, right? I'm not describing anybody here, am I? Let Let me let you in on a little trade secret among pastors. The spirit of jealousy and competition is alive and well among churches and among church leaders. Alive and well. And this is not true, by the way, of any of the pastors from this area that I hang around with. There's two or three that I gather with on a regular basis. And this really doesn't go on. I wouldn't gather with them if I thought it went on because this stuff drives me nuts. 
but I've been in other areas where this is the case. And I, there's a larger group actually that's associated with the camp, Kokololik Bible Camp, that I enjoy fellowship with. And I never get this sense from them. But I've hung around plenty of conferences and conventions and pastors' meetings where this is the case. And, and you hear things like this. How big is your church? Oh, we got X number of people. Oh, yeah, we're up to so-and-so, and we got this going on, that going on. And pretty soon you hear people saying things like, wow, they've got a building program? Well, we need to have a building program. Uh, they've got this ministry? Well, we've got to have that ministry times two. And if they've got this, we have to have this plus this. And you end up adding this and adding that. And there is a spirit of competition that exists even among pastors. Shh, but don't tell anybody that I told you that, because they'll get mad at me. But that is indeed the case. It is incredibly liberating, incredibly liberating to come to the settled conclusion, and I did this years ago, that whatever somebody else has is by the determination of God. I'm fine with that. Whatever God gives me is ours by the determination of God. Why is Kootenai Community Church this size and not three times this size? Why is that? Does that have anything to do with me? Dave, Jess? Are we the ones that build it? Are we the ones that limit it? There's nothing to do with us. It's God has determined it. Why are we this size and not half this size? Because God has determined the scope and the reach and the influence of every minister and every ministry. And I can honestly tell you, in all the years that I've eldered or shepherded with Dave and Jess, that not once in any, any elders meeting that we have ever had, have we ever sat around and asked ourselves, how do we build the church? How do we increase attendance? How do we grow our body? You know why we don't do that? Because we just don't care about that. This stuff doesn't come up. It's not of interest to us. It's not that, I mean, if there were three people here next Sunday, we would be a bit concerned and we'd start asking ourselves, what's going on here? There's a reason for that, obviously. And, but it's never our concern as, as if it's our job to build a bigger church in any way. It's God who determines the growth, the length, the duration, and the scope of influence for every minister and every ministry. It includes whether you're a pastor or an elder or a deacon. It also includes the Sunday school class that you teach or whatever ministry that you have. It is God alone who determines the scope and the influence and the duration of that. He and he alone has determined that. The spirit of jealousy amongst pastors is nothing new. Um, this was brought back afresh to me recently. I was reading a book by Ian Murray called The Forgotten Spurgeon. And I mentioned this in the book review article that came out, uh, uh, well, it came out recently. I'm not sure when that stuff gets published anymore. I lose track. But um, there were three controversies in Spurgeon's ministry. One of them happened early in life. When Spurgeon started preaching, he was 19 years old at a little country church. 19 years old. I was, 20, I was 24, and I thought the people in this church were a fool when they asked me to do it at 24. Spurgeon was 19. By the age of 22, he was in London preaching in New Park Street Chapel. And people were coming by the thousands to hear him. They started renting Exeter Hall, which would seat 4,000 people. And they filled Exeter Hall, and there were hundreds and thousands outside who were trying to get into Exeter Hall, and the people inside considered themselves blessed. Actually, there were people in, in those days who were friends with police officers, and the police officers would help get their friends in because the places were so packed. Exeter Hall got to the point where they said, we can't just rent this facility to one denomination over and over again. So they started looking for their Sunday evening services to have their Sunday evening services at the Surrey Gardens Music Center. And so they started to pack out the Surrey Gardens Music Center, which would seat upwards of 10,000 people. And Spurgeon was preaching to 10,000 people at 22 years of age. And what do you think that that did for the other pastors in London who had been preaching for 10, 20, 30, and 40 years and had churches of 100 or 200 or 300 people? And then their people were going on Sunday evenings to hear Charles Spurgeon. 
You think there was some jealousy? Spurgeon at one point said that his name was being kicked about in the streets like a football in the press and in the Christian newspapers of his day. And by that he meant not the football like we have, but a soccer ball. He was being bantied about. His wife over the over a wall on one of his um, rooms in his house wrote, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say evil things about you for my name's sake. And Spurgeon's name was excoriated and hated by almost every segment of the Christian church in London. The leaders of his own denomination didn't want anything to do with this rising star. Rather than aligning with such a bold and vocal and ardent defender of the truth and the gospel, they found themselves opposing Spurgeon. And all of the hyper-Calvinists in London hated Spurgeon because they said he was a flaming Arminian. And all the Arminians in London hated Spurgeon because they said he was a hyper-Calvinist. And he was right in the middle, right between both of them. And he was hated by everybody on both sides of the coin. And then there were other pastors who didn't like him because they viewed Spurgeon as just this young upstart who would fall again to the ground. One of the, one of the local newspapers, the Sheffield Paper, writes this, and this was basically typical of how people spoke of Spurgeon in the early years of his ministry. Listen to this. This was in a newspaper. Just now, the great lion, the star, the meteor, or whatever else he may be called of the Baptists, that's not John the Baptist, by the way, but of the Baptists, the denomination, is the Reverend Mr. Spurgeon, minister of Park Street Chapel, Southwark. He has created a perfect furor in the religious world. Every Sunday, crowds throng to Exeter Hall as to some great dramatic entertainment. The huge hall is crowded to overflowing with an excited auditory whose good fortune in obtaining admission is often envied by the hundreds outside who throng the closed doors. Mr. Spurgeon preaches himself. Now stop right there. That is the most painful, horrible thing that anybody who has ever been given the task of preaching the word could ever possibly hear. The man preaches himself. That's what they said. Mr. Spurgeon preaches himself. He is nothing unless he is an actor unless exhibiting that matchless impudence which is his great characteristic, indulging in coarse familiarity with holy things, declaiming in a ranting and colloquial style, strutting up and down the platform as though he were at the Surrey Theater, and boasting of his own intimacy with heaven with nauseating frequency. It would seem that the poor young man's brain is turned by the notoriety he has acquired and the incense offered at his shrine. To their credit, be it spoken of Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon receives no countenance or encouragement from the leaders of his denomination. He is a nine days wonder, a comet that has suddenly shot across the religious atmosphere, and he has gone up like a rocket, and ere long will come down like a stick. End quote. <laughs> now that was the sentiment expressed not only in the newspapers, but by Spurgeon's fellow pastors in his day. Friends, you and I have to guard against any sense of jealousy that thinks that one man's success in ministry means the demise of what we do, whatever it is, and however it is that we do it. You don't have to be a pastor or the leader of a church or the leader of a national ministry to be prone to that temptation. It is to think that what happens good for one person means that I must suffer a loss. John the Baptist knew, and this is the thing that got Spurgeon through it, that no man can have anything unless it's been granted to him from heaven. Whether it is success or whether it is failure, it is by the hand of God and God alone determines the beginning and the end and the scope of influence of every ministry and every minister without exception. Now you may say, well, how is it then that you would criticize those who have big ministries who are false teachers? I mean, just wasn't it just a couple months ago we had Justin Peters in here who did an expose of all the false doctrines of these guys who have massive churches and ministries that are international in the countless tens of thousands. 
And I would just remind you of a couple things. What we're talking about in this text is, number one, faithful men, not false teachers. That's comparing apples to oranges. We do resist and oppose false teachers and false teachings, and we stand against those things out of faithfulness to God. That's We don't stand against real teachers, good, solid teachers that are reliable and faithful to the truth. Our criticism or our opposition to false ministries and false teachers and false doctrines has to do with what they do to the gospel, never the size of the ministry. Whether it's 5,000 or 50,000 is irrelevant to the question. The question is, what are they doing to the truth? And how is the name of Christ being maligned and blasphemed? And we oppose it on that grounds, not because it might be a big ministry or a big church. So no man can have anything unless it's been granted to him by God from heaven. That's the first point. God has determined it. The next two will go by much quicker. And you're looking at your watch. You're saying to yourself, I hope that all three of them are not take this long, and they won't. That's the primary one, so we had to take that one and spend the time on it. The next one, because John's ministry, John's message, sorry, he had already declared that or actually anticipated it. Look at verse 27. Or sorry, 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. And John there refers back to the very testimony that they referenced in verse 25 and in verse 26. Do you remember, teacher, when you were on the other side of the river and you gave testimony to him? Well, now everybody's going to him and they're not coming to you. And John says, do you remember when we were on the other side of the river and I bore testimony to him? Yeah, of course we did. That's what we just said. What was it that I said on the other side of the river? You heard me bear witness to him, but what was it that I said? I said to you and to everybody else while we were over there, I am not the Christ. Did you not hear that? Did you not get that? You heard me bear witness, but what was the essence of what I was saying? You're right that I said this, but they missed the whole point of what he said. They had no reason. There was nothing that John had ever said which would give give rise to this type of misunderstanding. This whole controversy, this whole spirit of jealousy was entirely of their own making. John had never said anything which would lend them to believe or lead them to believe that he thought of himself more highly than he did. I told you I am here to herald the king. I never at once, not once at any time, said I'm here for any other purpose other than to point men to him. And that is what I have done, and that is where men are going. And I myself had said that this was the program, this was the plan, this was the scope of my own ministry. God had demanded it. Second, his testimony had demonstrated it. And then third, his ministry actually depended upon it. And this is verse 29, and he gives an illustration in verse 29. It's an illustration that would have been readily recognizable to anybody in in Jesus' day or John's day, they would have understood exactly what he was saying. But because weddings functioned a little bit differently back then than they do today, it takes a little bit of unpacking for us to see the symbolism. Verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. Now John here is giving an illustration or an analogy to show why it is, remember, that he must decrease, because that's what he's leading up to in verse 30, and why Christ must increase. And so he uses the wedding ceremony or how weddings were done in that day. He references three people in verse 29. The bride, the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom. Now who are these three people? Obviously the friend of the bridegroom is none other than John the Baptist, because he says in the verse 29 that the friend of the bridegroom, his joy increases when he hears the bridegroom's voice, and then he says, so my joy has been made full. So John equates himself with the bridegroom's friend. The bridegroom, obviously, is Jesus. That's the intended analogy here. Now the question is, who is the bride being spoken of? Is the bride being spoken of the body of Christ or the bride of Christ? No, I don't think it is. 
I don't think it's the bride of Christ or the body of Christ because John wouldn't have had any understanding of that. This was at least three years before anything like the church or the bride of Christ was thought of. So it's not the same as saying the church. What does John have in mind here? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets oftentimes would portray the relationship between the nation of Israel and Yahweh as with a covenant, a marriage covenant. And sometimes the nation of Israel was described as the bride of Yahweh. And what that analogy was intended to portray was the covenanting of the nation to their God. It was similar to the covenant between a man and his wife. And so by using the analogy of the bridegroom and the bride, I think John here is speaking of those who would come to Yahweh as a result of his ministry, they were the bride. Now, in this context, it was Old Testament Jews, but John is in, or Jews, not Old Testament Jews, Jews, but John is in no way equating the church with Israel. I think that goes beyond the intended analogy. The analogy is only intended to show why John's ministry must decrease. That's the goal. And so the bridegroom is Christ. The friend of the bridegroom is John. The bride is all those that John was bringing and pointing to Christ, who were responding well to the message and going to Jesus. Now here's how the analogy worked. In that day, the friend of the bridegroom was kind of equivalent to our modern-day best man, but he had many more responsibilities. Some of the responsibilities of the best man or the friend of the bridegroom in that day was to make all of the preparations for the wedding ceremony. Today, that's the bride and her friends or whoever she sort of delegates that to. Today, that's the bride. In that day, it was the friend of the bridegroom. So his job was to prepare the ceremony, prepare everything that went around the ceremony, the feast that would follow, like you see in John chapter 2 with the wedding and the, at Cana of Galilee and the turning the water into wine. That whole celebration was prepared by the bridegroom's friend. And in that day, all of the attention was on the bridegroom, not the bride. It was the bridegroom, the groom's day, not the bride's day. And so the friend of the bridegroom, his job was to sort of pave the way, remove all the hindrances and the obstacles, prepare everything that was necessary for the bride to be brought to the bridegroom. And then once the bride was brought to the bridegroom, he would step out of the way. So his job was to prepare all of that. And it's you can see the analogy with John's ministry. He describes himself as the voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make the crooked path straight, make the hills lowered and the valleys come up, make it a smooth path for the, for the bridegroom to come in. So the friend of the bridegroom, his job was to prepare everything, then to bring the bride to the bridegroom and bring them together in union. And then having presented the bridegroom to the groom, no, bride, having presented the bride, did I say bride to the bridegroom? Having presented the bride, see that works in, San Francisco and Massachusetts, but nowhere else. (laughs) Having presented the bride to the bridegroom, he steps out of the way, and all of a sudden, all of the focus and attention is off of the bridegroom's friend and now onto the bridegroom where it belongs. That's the analogy. Now, can you see what John's ministry was intended to fulfill? Prepare the way of the Lord. The bridegroom has arrived. Present people to the bridegroom and step out of the way, into the shadows, and now the nation's attention, everybody's attention, is intended to be on the bridegroom where it properly belongs. It would have been completely inappropriate, completely inappropriate, for the friend of the bridegroom, having presented the bride to the groom, to stay there and continue to draw attention to himself in competition with the bridegroom. It wasn't his day. It was the bridegroom's day. It is Likewise, it would be entirely inappropriate for John having presented the people to the Messiah, having presented the Messiah to the people, to continue to stay there and draw attention to himself rather than reflect it to 
the bridegroom where it properly belongs. Can you see the analogy? That was John's job. The success of his ministry depended upon Jesus increasing and him decreasing. That's what verse 30 is about. Verse 30 is actually wrapping up or summarizing the bride, bridegroom, friend of the bridegroom illustration. Having been the friend of the bridegroom, my job was to bring the people to the bridegroom. Having done that, I step away. I must decrease. I have to step down now. And he must increase because he's the bridegroom and I'm not. So not only had God determined it and his ministry had depended or had described this very thing, but his own ministry, the success of it depended upon that. Now, if John had been receiving more disciples than Jesus and baptizing more people than Jesus, there would have been cause for concern on John's behalf. Because he knew that the measure of the success of his own ministry, the measure of the success of his own ministry was how many people were following after Jesus, not after himself. And the disciples thought that his decreasing popularity was a measure of his failure, not his success. And John is saying, my decreasing popularity is a measure of my success, not my failure. I know from the fact that he is being made much of, and I am being made little of, that people are leaving me and going to him. I know from that fact that I have faithfully done what God has called me to do. I have faithfully discharged my duty. Because he must increase and I must decrease. And if it were the other way around, John the Baptist would have been a failure. But the success of his ministry depended upon people following after Jesus and not himself. And here's the core truth for you and I, friends. The measure of every ministry and minister is not how many people follow them. Never is. If that were the measure, then Mormonism would be blessed by God. Every false cult, false religion in the world would be blessed by God. Islam would be the truest religion on the face of the earth. If the measure were simply the size of the following. But that's not it. The measure of success for any ministry or minister is not how many people follow him or the movement, but how many people are appointed to Christ as a result of it. So anytime you in your Sunday school class or whatever ministry it is that you have, your witnessing encounters, anytime you or I draw attention to ourselves at the expense of Christ, we know we have failed. Because the only true mark of a true ministry is that it points people to Christ. Every genuine ministry, every God-blessed ministry points people to Jesus and never to anybody else. So you and I should be able to say, he must increase in whatever I do, and I must decrease. Our goal is to make much of him that people might follow him, love him, and worship him, and make little of ourselves so that we do not get in the way of that. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is truly a blessing to be called by your name, to be given a ministry and a commission to serve you in whatever it is and whatever capacity that you choose. We also thank you that we can rest in the confidence that everything that we have been given, the beginning of our ministry, the beginning of ministers, also the end of our ministry and the scope of our ministry is determined by you. And we pray that you would guard us and help us to be on guard against the spirit of jealousy which envies what you have given to others and tries to take what you have not given to us. We pray, O oh God, that you would be glorified through this, that we may make much of Christ and little of us and little of other men. May we, as the friends of the bridegroom, as those who must point people to him, never stand in the way and draw attention to ourselves. We ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.